All right, welcome to I'm Interested. This is Mike Greenberg, and I'm really excited about this day. This is a departure for me. When I first decided to do this podcast, one of the things that I told the people at ESPN, and again, the concept here is that I just want to interview people I find interesting about the things that I believe make them interesting. I said, I want to do some that are not in sports. And blessedly, the people I work for agreed. So I wanted to do a writer. I wanted to do someone from the world of news and journalism to talk about where that's all going. Because that isn't really what I do on a daily basis. And I want to talk to someone in business because I know nothing about business. And I spend a lot of time around a lot of people who are in business. And every idea I have in business, they always tell me, is ridiculous. So I wanted to talk to someone who does know something about business. Now, recently, when I moved back to New York City after all of these years living in other places... I settled into a neighborhood where Danny Meyer restaurants tend to be, and I started eating in them regularly. And not only are they excellent restaurants, but the concept behind them is so unique and so unusual that it. I found out that he had written a book called Setting the Table. And I went out and I bought that book and I read the book Setting the Table, and that was when I said, I want to interview the legendary restaurateur Danny Meyer, who is now known really across the country and maybe across the world because he, he founded Shake Shack. Um, and I want to do an interview Danny Meyer, so it is my delight to welcome Danny Meyer as my guest on I'm Interested. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm especially happy since I failed the test of being a sports figure, <laughs> which I wanted to be when I was growing up, to get to be on the other side of the mic from you as a business guy. It's it's a pleasure. Thanks, Greeny. Well, thank you. So so I want to start with this, and this might act, the answer to this might actually be sports. Here's the first thing I'm interested in. I have made many friends in my adult life whom I did not know as children. And I would say the overwhelming majority of them, I don't know where they grew up. Everyone I know who grew up in St. Louis tells you they're from St. Louis and talks about it constantly. In fact, my social media director, Kayla Johnson, is going to laugh because the executive producer of our show, Get Up, is from St. Louis. And not only does he refer to it constantly, but any athlete who's from St. Louis, he tells you they're from St. Louis. He tells you what high school they went to. What is it about being from St. Louis that inspires this this seemingly unmatched sort of civic attachment? It's a great city. It's a great place to be from. People are incredibly nice. And we have the added chip on our shoulder that if you live in New York, everyone assumes that you're just this thing that I flew over on my way to L.A. or San Francisco or whatever. Or you're a thing I can't even see when I fly to Chicago. The one time I have to go to the Midwest. But I also think that if you're from St. Louis and you grew up with Camo X Radio in your ear, as I did, um, and it was the St. Louis Baseball Cardinals and the St. Louis Hockey Blues and the St. Louis Football Cardinals until they left town, you just learned this huge civic pride because it was the one thing that made us appear on the national stage nothing else really did the arch did but outside of that it was sports teams and i've got to say to this day i think that people on my team at union square hospitality group restaurants roll their eyes at the amount of time i talk about st louis they also roll their eyes at me when i make sports metaphors for how i lead and uh i just i don't know i it was the single best place i could have grown up and i'll take it one step further When I came to New York in 1981, New York was not an incredibly friendly place. It was competitive and 
you know, Frank Sinatra's if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. That was kind of the the time when that was a hot song. But I think what New Yorkers forgot back then in those early days was that being the best is not a reason to not be nice. And they also never understood that, you know, nice guys cannot be really competitive. And so it's been a fun thing to proudly say I'm from St. Louis, which is a city that that is proud, that does want to be the best, that is competitive, that has a great a great history of, of winning at, at various things, and then bring that gift to a city that says no one's better than we are. So you said a bunch of things there that interest me. Let's let's start with the importance of Jack Buck in your ear, because you wrote about that in your book. And and here we are having a sports conversation already. Um, but I'll do the whole thing I, in sports I, if you want. I've tried over the years to 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 describe how important a baseball announcer, that sport more than any other, can become to people. As, as I don't know if you ever met Jack Buck in your life, but it becomes someone. I grew up with Phil Rizzuto, and 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 it became someone who was my my closest friend, and, and, and I never met him in my entire life. How would you describe the relationship you? felt you had with with Jack Buck, a legendary announcer on KMOX Radio when you're growing up in St. Louis? Well, it was the best. As a matter of fact, uh, my best friend in second grade was Jack Buck's son. And uh, part of the reason he became my best friend is because I wanted to meet his dad at some point. <laughs> well, I'm um, not talking about Joe, I assume. No, I'm talking about Dan, who's older than Joe. Okay. Um, who I don't I don't think I've said his name or thought about him for years till, till you just asked me the question. But Jack Buck rec- uh, really represented someone who was smart, dry sense of humor, um, helped you understand things, helped you feel smart yourself. He was... Depending on the night, he was the Sandman who helped put me to sleep because of the Cardinals were playing on the West Coast. I was listening to the radio even though I was supposed to be in bed. Mm-hmm. I was in bed. Um, anyway, no, he just he was he was great. And you know, speaking of pride, when when he would do uh, football on CBS, the national game of the week, that was a feeling of pride for those of us in St. Louis that our guy is not only great at baseball, but he's even. The guy that they're they're hiring for for football, and then when Dan Kelly, who was our sportscaster uh, for the Blues, became the national voice of the NHL when they did their um, Sunday afternoon games, which used to be on every Sunday when I was growing up, there there we went again. The St. Louis guy got the call. That's remarkable. That, that again, people in St. Louis are crazy with the St. Louis. The other thing you said that I want to do unpack is you use sports metaphors. With your staff, when you can you give me an example of that? Well, I can give you one that I just used last week, which is when we talk about what we look for in a great employee. We, in the same way that anyone who works for us would, I think, say, over and beyond making a living, I want this job to be something that rewards me in many, many other ways. And they would they would love it if this was a hundred percent job, just like I would love it if they were a hundred percent employee. And the way we we break down the 100% and what we want is 51% is based on who you are as a person and 49% is based on how good you are at what you know how to do. So bottom line is you could serve a perfect dinner in one of our restaurants. The timing is right. You ordered the salmon medium rare. It came medium rare. We didn't spill on your wife. We got your coat back, you know, didn't give you someone else's coat. All that stuff that's nearly impossible to do perfectly. If we did it perfectly, the performance, we would get 
a 49 on our test, which is a failing grade. Absent the hospitality, how we made you feel, which is where we build up the 51. So now the sports metaphor. I love how baseball, I think more than any sport I'm aware of, measures everything and has a statistic for everything. How you bat, how you bat against lefties, righties, with runners on base, with one out, two outs, blah, blah, blah. You know, sure. I'm not going to tell you about right. all, all the analytics. And they go now for there's a every, every single thing. And it blows my mind that in that, if you look at that framework, what baseball doesn't do is to recognize that in a nine-inning game, a starting position player is spending nine half innings on the field earning those statistics and is also spending nine half innings in the dugout where there are no statistics. And I believe that those no statistics, what happens in the dugout and in the clubhouse is 51% of what makes a champion. So when we talk to our staff and I ask them, I see who you are on the field. I, I can look at the uh, the chef Jason Pfeiffer of Manhattan. I can look at John Reagan, who's the wine director of all of our restaurants um, and who's the managing director of all of our new businesses. And I can tell you exactly what their stats are on the field, how many dishes got sent back per night, how many guests left raving about the food. We can measure all that. But what I really want to know is who are they in the dugout? What are they doing to raise the performance of everyone else on the team? What are they doing to make this a restaurant that the best players would want to work at? That is just as potent here as it is anywhere else. And I think, you know, I got I got thinking about this. I got a chance to meet someone I'm sure you've met many times, Theo Epstein. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess he was certainly one of the pioneers of the whole Moneyball way of looking at on-the-field statistics mm-hmm. and then predicting how to get value for the players that are on your team. And he was telling me that he's now starting to think about who is someone when they're not on the field? Correct. And as, and, and it's just as important as in business, if not more important, than it is in baseball. I've had that conversation with Theo Epstein, to be honest with you, and with the owner of the Cubs, Tom Ricketts, that the numbers, what they don't tell you, is, it's, it's almost exactly identical to what you're saying. What they don't tell you is the value that people bring in by being good people and how important that is, which is hard to quantify, which is what I want to get to here. So again, I should mention, by the way, that we are in Manhattan, which is your newest restaurant, which is all the way downtown. For the longest time, I know you only opened restaurants you could walk to from your apartment in New York. We've obviously gone away from that. There's a Shake Shack everywhere on planet Earth. Um, but here we are in Manhattan, all the way downtown with a spectacular view of, of Manhattan in, in basically every direction. So it's a delightful and thank you for having us here. So, so let's, let's talk about a couple of business concepts. It seems to me that trial and error is the only proven way to figure out problems. The only, the only proven way in history to figure out the solution to any problem is by learning from mistakes. And I sometimes fear that we are raising a generation of people that are very afraid to make mistakes. I see what's going on with my own kids, who I know your kids are a little older than mine. Mine are teenagers. And I don't know if it's because we're basically raising them in an environment that if they get a single B, now you're never going to Harvard, or whatever it, whatever it is the reason is. I feel like we are raising a generation of people who are afraid to ever make a single mistake. And I wonder what that will mean 
for the future of people who want to be entrepreneurs like yourself and the future of business in general, people are afraid to make mistakes. What, what is the answer to that? What, how important is it for people to be willing to try things and make mistakes in order to have any success in, in a world in which you operate? Well, it's, it's everything, and I think you're absolutely right that, that generationally – I think one of the tough things, especially if uh, one's parents have been um, performers the way you are. When I say performer, I don't mean like in the sense of acting, but you have performed your role at a very, very high level. And that sets a standard that, uh, you know, your kids look up to you and and they want to try to achieve that. And on one hand, that could make someone afraid to even step in the batter's box because, God forbid, I'm going to strike out. It's better if I just never tried. And um, look, I, I think that um, one of the hallmarks of an entrepreneur that I've found through the through the years, and certainly it's been true of me, is that it doesn't start with a sense of a fear of making a mistake. As a matter of fact, I think that entrepreneurs in general are upsided, meaning they only see up. They don't see down. They, You're looking at, at, you the, just, at the, you the potential just, upside yeah, versus the potential. One of the down. things that I've learned is one of my weaknesses, as an, I'm, I'm still an entrepreneur all these years later, is when you have an idea that that really tickles you and you feel like, this this changed my life. I love this dish so much. I love this wine so much. I love this space where we're sitting in Manhattan so much. You don't even think for a second, what if it doesn't work? You, you basically just go, well, of course it's going to work. And now my question is, how do I pull all the pieces together, including the right people to work there, the right people to design it, the right chef, the right architect, you know, the right business deal? And then you pretty much have to accept that success is never in business, ever, 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 a straight line. And looking out onto uh, the harbor here in New York as we're having this this conversation and I'm seeing a ton of sailboats and I know for a fact that none of those sailboats while they wanted to get from point A to point B not one of them is going to get there in a straight line any more than my business is and so you start off with a destination in mind you start off with a point of view about how you're going to get there and then you've got to be willing to accept that that you didn't get it all right and and that's when listening comes in and I think people who are successful at, at business or really at anything have to be better listeners than they are stubborn. I think stubbornness and a lack of humility are really, really good recipes to not to not lead effectively. It's interesting you say that because listening, that I have, oh, whenever people ask me about what I do for a living, I always say the most important quality of a successful broadcaster is listening. And I always tell people who want to conduct interviews, the second question you ask should always be influenced by the answer to the first question that you asked. You can't just sit there and read your questions in order. But so what do you mean by that? Who are you listening to? Who, as, as the boss, which you are, who, uh, who, to whom are you listening? Well, I'm really listening to every one of our five stakeholders, starting with the team that works here, because they're on the front line. And, you know, I'm, here I go again with one of my sailboat metaphors, but as we've grown larger as a business... Um, you know, I had one restaurant for the first ten years of my career, and I, it was like it was like having a sunfish in a pond mm-hmm. where I could I could be the only guy on the boat and I could see everything. The longer our boat has gotten, 
I'm still the skipper in the back, but there's a lot less that I see that's in the front. And I'll be damned if I don't have to listen first to the people on our team who are at the front of the boat who are taking the waves in their face when I make a mistake or who are going to be the first to get knocked off the boat if I hit a rock or worse, a whale or something like that. And so you first got to listen to your team and then you've got to listen to your guests and then you've got to listen to your community and then your suppliers and then finally your investors. Um, I sometimes think that it's worth listening to your investors last um, because the way to make them the most money is to listen to your own team first. This is very similar to sports. It, it feels to me as though the successful sports franchises, I'll use the Pittsburgh Steelers as an example. They've had three head coaches, the Steelers, since 1969. I'm, I think half the bad teams in the NFL have had three coaches since since like four years ago. Right. right? And, and so what that says to me is... They believe in the people they put in place, and they're willing to ride out the bad times with them, recognize to the point we made before about trial and error that you're not going to get every decision right. You're not, you're not going to win every game, but if you believe in the people that you have in place, then you'll ride out those storms with them. Right. Is, is that similar I, to what it, you're saying? It is, and I, I just think that um, so much has to do with who you selected in the first place. And I think if I've learned one really, really big lesson, I'm an incredibly loyal person. Um, you know, again, we'll get back to St. Louis for a minute. It it was a it was a day of discovery for me when I first went to a game at Shea Stadium, and I heard the Mets fans in 1981 or 82 booing one of their own players who struck out. I mean, in St. Louis, if your guy struck out, you politely cheered, saying, "You'll get him next time." Yeah, yeah. And and we were a loyal kind of place and I, I think though if I've learned one thing if if you didn't have the right guy in the first place what the story you're telling about the Steelers tells me two stories number one is they picked the right people in the first place and then they stuck with them through thick and thin because I think if you stick with someone who either doesn't have the technical skills to be a champion or doesn't have the emotional skills to be a great leader it's kind of a fool's errand and uh I sometimes think that patience and loyalty are great things when you have someone who's got the right attitude and just needs to get better. But when you're when you're putting that patience in someone who doesn't have the right attitude, the quicker you cut ties, the better. Are you alluded to something in that? And so let's get to it. And, and that is, for lack of a better word, the the order of importance of of the different constituents or the different people that make up a restaurant. So I'll, I'll start the question by saying this. That I live most of the time in Connecticut, and there is a very famous grocery store right near me called Stu Leonard's. I don't know if you've heard of it. I know Stu well himself. Known. Stu well. himself. Okay. And, and so when you walk into Stu Leonard's, everyone in the world that, that lives around there knows Stu Leonard's. Can I tell you what they say? Yeah. The customer always comes first. Rule number two. Read rule number That's one. That's exactly <laughs> right. The sign says, rule number one, the customer is always right. Rule number two, if the customer is wrong, see rule number one. I, I, I've always loved that sign, and I've always thought that is the way it works in, a, in an industry where you're selling something, whether right. you're selling groceries as he is and great ice cream and all sorts of other things that he has, or you're selling food in restaurants or whatever it is. The customer is right. Your philosophy is the people that work for you come first. That's your primary concern. I wrote this down to make sure I have it right. It goes employees, then guests, then community then the suppliers, and then the investors. Where, from where did you get that idea, which seems to run contrary to 
everyone else I've ever right. heard about. Well, before I answer the question, can I tell you, we're just in the process of packing up our office because we're moving after many, many years. Yeah. And that's that wonderful moment where you have to say, do I really need this? Do I really want to keep that? Well, so I found a gift from Stu Leonard just a couple of days ago, yeah. which was this rock. It's sort of the bedrock. And they write the two rules on there. And he crossed out number two. So it, it says the customer is always right. And number two, where it says, when in doubt, yeah. see, on, he crossed it out and he wrote, except for you, Danny. <laughs> okay. So, so, so you're so like, he and I have had this. It. No, we've had this conversation before. Look, I, I think that I grew up hearing from everyone in my family, it's all about service and it's all about the customer. And I know that that sounds like a cliche, but you have to understand that this was in the, you know, when I was, I took my first uh, economics class at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and we were studying Milton Friedman, the professor from University of Chicago, who said the first and most important stakeholder is the investor, because if you always make, he was basically rejecting the notion that the customer comes first. Mm -hmm. It's all about service. And he was saying, if you make 100% of your decisions rationally in terms of the interest of your investor, things always work out. So now I get into business as a 27-year-old with Union Square Cafe. And in one year, I've got my family saying, it's the customer, stupid. And I've got my Econ 101 class professor in my ear going, it's the investor, stupid. And you decided it was neither of them. I decided that the best way to make customers really happy was to put them second. And the best way to make investors really happy was to put them fifth, not as a linear one through five list where the, the investor was at the bottom of the totem pole, but as a virtuous cycle. And once you start looking at it as a virtuous cycle where you go, if you break that cycle anywhere, you've broken the whole thing. So if you have unhappy investors... You will never have happy employees because the only way you have really happy employees ultimately is if they can find professional and financial growth opportunities. And if you don't have happy investors, you're not going to be able to pay people more money and, and open a new business where people can grow, etc. But I turned it on its head because emotionally, as a 27-year-old first-time businessman where at least half the people working for me were older than I was. I came to work emotionally wanting to make my own team happy to come to work. And I learned that counterintuitively because the first time I was ever anyone's boss was working in a presidential campaign at the age of 22. And it was a guy named John Anderson who was running as an independent. Yeah. Um, and I was in, I was in Chicago, um, and they gave me way too much responsibility because anyone with any experience was either working for the Republican Reagan or the Democrat Carter, and so I got a much bigger job than I should have gotten. But a hundred percent of the people who were working for me were volunteers. I didn't have a paycheck with which I could give people a raise. I couldn't dock anybody their pay for being late. So a thousand percent of my leadership had to be making people understand that they were working for a higher purpose and realizing that the greatest gift I can give them was a great esprit de corps. And so then when I opened my own business as a 27-year-old, 
And I realized that half the people working for me were good enough to have gotten another 10 job offer somewhere else. I knew that I had to really emotionally act as if I were working for them and that that I needed to earn the right to have someone that good, that good, that good, that good say, this is where I want to go earn my, my living with that place. And I finally figured out that I'm desperate to have happy guests. We'll do almost anything to make sure someone leaves here happier than they came. But I also learned that there was a direct correlation between how great it felt to come to work here and whether or not you would be happy being a guest. And so when you go to Daily Provisions or Marta or Myelina, which I'm grateful for, the restaurants of ours that you've loved going to, I can almost promise you that while I hope you love the food and the drink at those places, I can almost promise you that one of the things you're really connecting to is the energy that our staff is putting out. And that's only because they love going to work with each other. Well, so that that's exactly it. So this now we've gotten to the heart of it. So, And, and the only other job I've ever had in my entire life that was not in the broadcasting industry was I waited tables when I was in college. And so I, the, you know, the restaurants, from and the, the, the most minuscule experience you can possibly have, but I had it. And the restaurant business is a, a typically is very transient. It's people who go from place to place. And if you go to one of your restaurants, it is noticeable. It is impossible not to notice the investment that has been made by the people who work there, how much they feel as though this is a place that is that is meaningful. They, they, I, I tell anyone that I bring for the first time, ask the person who comes over to fill your water glass about the ingredients in any of the dishes on the menu, and they'll know, and they'll be able to tell you in detail and which one they like and all of that sort of thing. So, so you have done that. You have given people careers in places that used to just be jobs. How, why, and what is the impact on that? And, and, and most importantly, what I really want to get to is, what is the lesson for business people in that? that that's what I want to understand, because you've done something I've never seen anyone else do. What is the, the bigger picture lesson in yeah, that that me, people listening can learn? Can I just say why I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you? Because the answer is all in sports. And I, I don't understand for a minute why... Sports gets to use words like team and business. They, they look at us like we're from Mars when we say that. Or why sports gets to say, I'm going to play a game. Um, and we have to say, I'm going to work. Right? So if you're a baseball player or a tennis player or a football player or a basketball player, name the sport. When you leave home that morning, you don't say, I'm going to work. I'm going to, going to play. Going to play tennis. I'm going to play. Why can't this be a team sport? Why can't hospitality be a team sport? Even though we don't have, you know, touchdowns and safeties and home runs and doubles and triples. What if we did? What if, what if hospitality takes a team? And what if it, what if, what if you can win at that sport? And what if the way you measured your runs were how many people actually left the door of your restaurant feeling even better than however they felt when they first got there. That's a victory. Just like the fans leave feeling better when your team wins, right? They don't feel yeah. better when your team loses. Of course. And when you take that approach, I will tell you right now that what I look at and teach in any single one of our restaurants or in our home office is this. I'm really only looking at two things when I look at our teammates. One, are they focused on doing the t- 
task at hand as well as it can be done? And B, are they having fun with each other in a respectful, trusting way while they're doing it? So as I look around, I'm now looking for the next sports metaphor, which I teach and I talk about. I don't know of any sport at all where follow-through is not key to success. You could be a passer in football. You could be a right wing in hockey. You could be you could be a shuffleboard player. Follow through mm-hmm. is tennis. Obviously, is is everything. What if there were actually a follow through moment that I can coach and teach in the restaurant business? And I'll tell you exactly what it is. And if you look around, you'll probably be able to see some of it. Um, when restaurants are are working, and even before they're working, right now we're in setup for dinner. It's a hubbub of activity. We have position players, just like any other team sport, right? The barista plays behind the, the coffee station. The sous chef plays here. The pastry chef plays here. The bartender plays there. The busboy, the, the waiter, the maitre d'. Everyone's got a position to play. And everyone, over the course of the evening, it's a contact sport because people are constantly bumping into each other, needing something from each other. Um, it could be that I ordered a drink from the bar, and now the bartender has put it up, and now I'm having, now I'm picking up the drink, taking it to the table. But it's a contact team sport. And at the moment of contact between two players, no matter what their position is, I'm watching two things. I'm watching the form. Did they do the thing as well as it can be done? But now I'm watching the true follow-throughs at the point of contact did the human energy level go up or did it go down? If if at that moment where somebody needed something from someone else and someone delivered something, it's like handing off a reverse end around, whatever. If their human energy went up, I am not at all worried that you're going to have a great time in the restaurant. So seriously, when I go into one of our restaurants and I spend 15 minutes just checking it out, I don't have to say a thing to anybody. I use my nose to make sure it smells right. I use my ears to make sure it sounds right. I use my eyes to make sure the lighting's right. But now all I'm really doing is watching our people. And I'm watching the point of contact, and I'm watching the follow-through. And I promise you, when that's not going well, you're going to taste it, you're going to feel it, and you're not going to have an exceptional experience. And that's why it all starts with our team. And the other piece of it that you can't miss is the no tipping. So in Danny Meyer restaurants, you sit down, they tell you there is no tipping. You will, the, 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 the server and all the other people are not being compensated based upon a gratuity at the end of the night. And that again is contrary to every other restaurant I've ever been in in my entire life. When I waited tables in Evanston, Illinois, and I went to Northwestern University in the late 80s, um, I would get paid. I remember my salary as a waiter was 50% of minimum wage because that was the law. And which, then whatever which was I got. actually generous back then be, because many states were lower than 50%. Maybe. So that's what it was. In, in Illinois, Carmen's Pizza in Evanston, Illinois, where I worked. Deep dish? Uh, it was the deep dish. Yeah, the sh- traditional Chicago stuffed pizza. Um, Lots of mozzarella? I mean, there would be tons. And I mean, you ever been to Gaetano's? Yes, of course. Is that place good or what? Yes, very good. Okay. Carmen's was actually very underrated, I thought. I mean, I, I thought it was great. Now, the people, people I think everywhere know Blue Malnati's, and, and they know, you know, Chicago pizza is sort of an institution. But anyway, the point is that 
I still remember. I still remember a table that stiffed me. And this is this is 30 years ago, and I still remember a guy that I gave ex- exceptional service to because he was on a date. He was obviously on a date. He was obviously trying to impress this woman. And I was kind of trying to be his wingman while I was his waiter. And I still remember that he stiffed me. The, the check was like $27 and change, and he left $28 in the thing. That's just me getting that off my chest. Has nothing to do really with the question, but the it question is: does, Where did you come want. up with this? Why the no tipping, and what does that do? And again, what is the lesson that other people in other industries can learn from that? Well, I really think that we're talking about professionalism, and and we're we're basically saying, um, as long as people view restaurant work as something you do because something else in your life didn't work out or that you do while you're working towards something different, which is what you did, which is what my kids did this summer, which is a great thing. But as long as we don't treat restaurant people as if this is just as valid of a profession as any other profession, you will always have complaints about service. And the most counterintuitive argument I heard when we eliminated tipping, there were basically two arguments I heard. The first one I thought was insane, which is, how can I be assured of getting good service if I don't retain the right and ability to punish someone with a bad tip? Mm. Now, that's insane if you think about it. Why? Well, you ask that person, well, have you ever had bad service? And they go, yeah, and I punish it with a bad tip. Well, then I guess the tipping system didn't prevent bad service, did it? comes after the fact anyway. And, and it's it's other. making a really flawed assumption, which is that, you, you know, from when you were a waiter, that the average waiter, say, has five or six, maybe seven tables in, in her station. And uh, it, it makes the flawed assumption that, that that server is looking at their station and saying, hmm, who should I actually be nice to tonight? Hmm. And who should I actually bring the food to tonight? Because if I assume that that table three is not going to give me a big tip, I will just not be nice to them. Well, that's not the kind of person I would ever, ever want to hire in any of our businesses. So finally, we said, professionally speaking, it's ridiculous that people should have to work for sub-minimum wage and therefore only be working for what thousands of different non-expert patrons decide they are worth. So if the food is late because the chef or the cook is having a bad night for whatever reason, why should that impact your ability to earn income as, as, as a waiter? It's my job as your boss to determine what value you should be paid. It's my job to pay you much more than a living wage. It's my job to compensate you for how many people you made happy, for how much you, you sold. I, don't, I want you to have one boss who you can hold accountable. I never want Mike Greenberg to spend 30 years being upset with a boss for one meal yeah. who he, who's completely unaccountable to you all these years later. You, if, if you're angry with anyone, you should be angry with your boss, and you should have an opportunity to talk to your boss about why you're worth more money. So th- there's, there's that. And then there's, there's this other thing, which is that that I truly, truly believe that hospitality is an incredibly valid profession. And I'm tired of having to be the guy that has to meekly explain to my family that I'm going into the restaurant business, which is, you know, which, which is not a valid career choice. I think that 
food and wine and hospitality plays such an important role in teaching people the humility of making someone feel better. And I want to pay people what they're worth uh, while they're doing that. Finally, I think if you take the approach that hospitality is a team sport, I couldn't stand those nights, a busy Friday night where, or a busy Saturday night where the tipped employees counted their money in a, in a hidden room and made a little bit more money while the, the cooks only perspired more. Can you imagine if, if you were a, a coach of a football team and it's halftime and the offense got paid by the crowd and they happened to put a lot of points on the board. The defense got paid by the cheapskate owner who's only paying them a couple bucks above minimum wage. And now you want to try to create unity amongst the offense and defense. So now we've completely gotten rid of that dynamic. The servers help the cooks. The cooks help the servers. It Counterintuitively, all of our metrics show that we have more guest satisfaction having eliminated tipping than before we before we did that. I don't know anyone who doesn't think so. I don't know anyone who has experienced your places, and myself included, which is the reason I want to do this. All right, because we're going to start running short on time here. So I want to, there's a few other things I want to get to. So let's try and run through them relatively quickly and see how we do. You talk a lot in your book about community, and you've referenced it here. One of the, um, the metaphors that you used is to build a garden in front of your house. What does that mean, and why is that important in business? It's the oldest cliche I've ever heard, but I, I don't know a better way to describe it. Well, first of all, the word community comes from common. It's it's what we have in common. And it's the rising tide lifts all boats theory of what we have in common. And, and I'm really competitive, and I love to win. But I would much rather win because my boat's the highest boat on the tide, not because I pushed you down. I don't really love winning at because I love seeing someone else lose. I just love doing a little bit better than we did yesterday. And so, for example, the restaurant we're in right now, Manhattan, this is a part of New York City downtown that has not been the hottest place to open a restaurant. And it's going to feel really good to have invested in this part of town to see this whole neighborhood come up. The more restaurants, the better. You know, I remember... When I was 27 opening Union Square Cafe, I hated every time another restaurant would open in that neighborhood because I wanted it all to myself. It would be like another dog coming in and peeing on my tree until I finally realized that each time another restaurant opened, we kept getting busier. And it's not a lesson that I think young business people understand, which is that competition that actually raises your game is probably good for your business. Think think about think about something you know a lot more about than I do. Why is it that the American League wins every single year in the All-Star game? And seemingly almost every single year, that's not exactly true, but if you look at the last 30 years, it seems like they've won a lot more World yeah. Series. I'm I'm going to bet that their community has raised its game because Everybody raised their game. That's the front yard theory. If I make my front yard nice, the neighbor next door is probably going to pick up his trash. Um, and I just feel like it's good for everybody when that happens.
I have to ask you about Shake Shack. It strikes me that to look at the marketplace and say, you know what the world needs right now is a place that sells hamburgers was a fascinating thing to do at a time when on every corner on the planet there was a McDonald's and a Burger King and a this and a that. And what I can't help but notice is that everywhere you go, no matter where you are, there is a line out the door at Shake Shack. Why is that? What did you see in that? What is it? What is that phenomenon? And why has it worked as it has worked? It's a great uh, question. And the, the answer is I didn't think the world needed another hamburger joint. I was strictly looking at Madison Square Park where we needed to have some art to get people to use the park. And in the summer of 2001, um, back before 9-11, we had attracted an artist uh, from Thailand to the park to get people to use the park. And he had this idea, not my idea, his idea, to have two taxi cabs on stilts, two New York City taxi cabs on stilts with a working hot dog cart to go with the taxi cabs. And they needed someone to operate the hot dog cart. And I said uh, to our team, I thought I was crazy when I said, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do the hot dog cart. And we had, uh, three years before that, opened two restaurants overlooking the park, trying to take care of the community, 11 Madison Park and Tabla. Um, and uh, we said, look, we can put our entire theory of hospitality to the test by doing this hot dog cart. It's all we wanted to do. And the theory was, our people first. Let's take five out-of-season coat checkers and give them a job during the summer so they don't have to wait till the weather gets cold in October. And let's serve Chicago-style hot dogs. Not only do I love them, but they have eight classic toppings. Let's see if, if even it's something as mundane as a hot dog cart, we can remember, oh, Mike's the guy that likes everything except sport peppers and... Susie's the woman who likes everything except neon relish. Let's see if we can figure that out. And while we're at it, let's give all of our money, all of our profits back to Madison Square Park, which was really easy because we lost a couple thousand bucks that year. And then finally, let's take care of our suppliers. Let's buy our pickles from the, a farmer in the green market, and let's make a relationship with Vienna Hot Dogs in Chicago, which we did. Well... Fast forward all these years later, not only did that really work well as a hot dog cart, which we did for three years, then in 2004 we said, let's see if this works as a permanent kiosk. And what we'll do is strike a deal where if this works, not only will it attract people to the park, which will keep the park safe, but we will give this kiosk as a philanthropic gift, give it to the park so the park becomes our landlord and a percentage of every sale will go back into the park. That's all we wanted to do was test this theory of enlightened hospitality. And uh, obviously it worked. Uh, that's how Shake Shack started? That's how I, I'm familiar with the original Shake Shack. I happen to live r literally a block away. That's from how it started. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that's the original Shake Shack. There, were, there was that's one, how the whole thing yep, started? And there was one Shake Shack for the first five years because we had no idea or interest in expanding it. And the only reason we expanded and opened a second one on the Upper West Side five years later was to see if we could possibly cannibalize the line because we kept getting complaints that the line was too long. It's packed. Even to this day, it's always And packed. that made it even busier. So today, we got a nice business out of it, public company. And Madison Square Park, Shake Shack, generates 
just shy of a million dollars in revenue annually for the park itself. So it's a great model. And no, I didn't think the world needed another burger place. I just thought that park could use it. It's phenomenal. Okay, last question for you. I want to talk about the coarsening of the culture because I think that's something that you cannot miss in in practically everything, whether you put on the news, whether you're active on social media, which I am. You, you talked about the friendly nature of, of people from where you grew up and you felt New York wasn't a friendly place. So that's obviously something that's so important to you. I just wonder, you seem like an optimistic person. Do you feel a sense of concern about what feels like it? And the anger, the negativity, the coarsening is the word I always use of our culture. And if so, if you feel optimistic about it, from where do you draw that optimism? What makes you feel optimistic that, that we are still going in the direction that would make someone like yourself feel good about our society in general? Well, I think politics are a lot like business. There's no such thing as a straight line. And yeah, we're going to need to course correct because um, we can't keep having conversations from our respective 10-yard lines. You know, growing up in St. Louis, when I did, St. Louis, uh, in fact, Missouri, was politically considered a bellwether state. Um, it wasn't blue and it wasn't red. It was a bellwether. It went with the, the – whoever won the presidential election won Missouri every single year. And that was back in the day when we were having – conversations between the 40-yard lines. You know, we had ABC, NBC, CBS. You might have said ABC was a little bit more conservative than NBC, which was a little bit more conservative than CBS. But we were yelling at each other between the 40-yard lines. Today we're yelling at each other from the 10-yard lines, and we can't hear each other. And because we can't hear each other, we just yell louder. And then we don't we don't even try to listen to each other. And I so to the degree that I have hope, and interestingly, hope is the root of the word hospitality. So I think the hope is actually at the dinner table. And I know this is going to sound either self-serving or stupid, one of the two. But um, when Blue Smoke opened our barbecue restaurant in 2002, it opened um, right about the time that um, there was a big strike in Major League Baseball. Players were locked out. And we came up with this idea that we would set, we would deliver some barbecued ribs to the negotiating table because it was our theory that it's impossible to sustain an angry argument when you're eating a really good barbecued rib. <laughs> you can't, like, yell at the guy while you're eating a rib. kind of puts a smile on your face despite your anger. And I do feel that the table, sitting around the table is not a bad place to get started. And I want to make sure that I want to make sure that if I if I can find ways to get people with different political points of view to the table, I'm drawing them closer to the 50-yard line. I like I can go to a restaurant in the deep south where I may not agree and they may not agree with my politics, but you know what? The minute we're eating Mabel's pie or Johnny's Fried Chicken, the respect and love that will now be the underpinnings of a rational conversation where people actually listen to each other, I think the stakes go way, way up. So I'm going to 
I don't know what I can do about it, but if Shake Shack contributes to that, that's a good thing. If any of our restaurants contribute, if your show inter- interviewing all these interesting people from different walks of life can help that, that's a really good thing. But I do, my hope is that that politics almost always course correct. Sometimes the pendulum swings completely the opposite direction, but hopefully we'll come back to the 40-yard lines before too long. Feels like a good place to end it. Listen, I, I'm so grateful. This is the first non-sports interview I've done in like 30 years. So uh, it really was fun for me, and I hope that everybody listening sort of got a sense of that and enjoyed uh, what was a departure here. And I will, I will end by saying my favorite sentence in your book, was I believe you were quoting your grandmother, who said, one tuchus cannot dance at two weddings. What, what does that mean exactly? I was actually quoting the grandmother of my former assistant. Okay. And what was the quote again? What, what, is that, what was that in relation to? You can't dance at two weddings with one tuchus, meaning this was my assistant telling me to, try, to quit trying to cram so many things into one day and one hour and one night like I like to do. Uh-huh. I don't like to cheat the clock at all. And so just she dance said at one that, wedding at a time. Uh, my grandfather said something along those lines, which is uh, doing two things like a half wit never equals doing one thing like a full wit. So I try to remember that, even though I love to constantly be busy, is just just be present. Well, I, I find it all fascinating. I, I thank you for doing this. I hope this was as interesting to everybody listening as it has been to me. Thank I love you, Danny. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. <laughs>